Bible to Matthew 25, please. Hear now God's word from Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. For the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country, who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to every man according to his several ability, and straightway took his journey. Then he that had received the five talents went and traded with the same, and made them other five talents. And likewise, he that had received two, he also gained other two. But he that had received one went and digged in the earth and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants cometh and reckoneth with them. And so he that had received five talents came and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, thou deliveredest unto me five talents. Behold, I have gained beside them five talents more. His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of of thy Lord. He also that had received two talents came and said, Lord, thou deliveredest unto me two talents. Behold, I have gained two other talents beside them. His Lord said unto him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Then he which had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew thee that thou art an hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown and gathering where thou hast not strawed. And I was afraid, and went and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo, there thou hast that is thine. His Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, thou knewest that I reap where I sowed not, and gather where I have not strawed. Thou oughtest therefore to have put my money to the exchangers, and then at my coming I should have received mine own with usury. Take therefore the talent from him, and give it unto him which hath ten talents. For unto every one that hath shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath. And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Amen. Thus far God's word. If you were to think of a sin, or perhaps a few certain types of sins, that 
people practice and commit who eventually, by doing so, find themselves in hell? What would that sin or those types of sins be? Something helpful to think about. Now, theologically speaking, okay, technically speaking, there's only one sin that if someone dies and has remained in that sin, sends them to hell, and that is unbelief. It's unbelief. Okay, the, the thief on the cross is a helpful example of, of this. He was a public criminal, probably was a murderer, wicked man, and yet he on the cross, literally on the cross next to Jesus, understood what was going on, understood who Jesus was, repented and believed in the gospel, believed and trusted upon Jesus Christ, and was saved. He stopped sinning in that one sin of unbelief, and if you will, he was saved. So technically, that is the one sin. And yet, we need to be practical. The Bible's practical. In other places of Scripture, Revelation 21, verse 8, is an example where Christ speaking, he says all the abominable, all the whoremongers, all the idolaters, all liars, will have, they have their place in the lake of fire. And, and this passage of Scripture is helpful because that, that, that sin that you have in your mind, maybe fornication or adultery or something like that, the people who just practice these things, right? You need to add to that list laziness. Willful neglect of the gifts God has given you. Refusal to use them for his glory. It's a wicked thing. And this passage is a warning, not to those who are openly scandalous, but to the lazy. This whole chapter is actually about judgment and warning. The first parable that I didn't read in this chapter is a parable of the ten virgins. It's basically be ready for the coming of Christ. This chapter, this section... J.C. Rawls summed up as, be diligent. But then the next part of the chapter is actually a vision of the last judgment. And, and Jesus is teaching, and he's, he's warning. It's a very gracious warning. It's helpful to be warned about such things. So my message to you comes in that way. I want to speak to you on Christian stewardship. That's my theme. Christian stewardship. And I want to speak to you under three main headings. And if you've heard me preach from this pulpit before, I'm first going to cover the exposition of the text. Then I'm going to make clear and improve the doctrine which the text teaches. That's my second heading. And then my third heading is the application of the doctrine to us. So first I want you to see the exposition of Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. And I have four points of exposition. First, verses 14 and 15, stewardship expected. Stewardship expected. For the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. First, we need to realize that we're, we're reading a parable. Okay, Jesus is giving a parable. A parable is a 
short story that has a lesson. It's a, it's a certain genre of scripture that has um, one main point, which I hope to show later is my doctrine. And we know that it's, in the King James at least, it's inserted for the kingdom of heaven because in verse 1 of this chapter, he says, for the kingdom of heaven can be likened unto. And he's, he's continuing that thought. He's giving another parable. So that's the genre we have here. And we have certain parties in this parable. We have a master who represents the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just God generally, as, as we say, like the Godhead, one God in three persons, but it's the Lord Jesus Christ who is the mediator, who's been given the kingdom. He is the king of the kingdom. And the servants, the three servants, are not just three like people in the world. They're people in the church. They're in the kingdom. A congregation of people. That's who the servants are. There's three, three servants. Notice that there's proportionality. So the master gives to these servants certain levels of money. That's what the talents are. The talent is actually, uh, in my studies, it's $1,500 would be the modern equivalent. So they're given different levels of talents, each according to their ability. So there's proportionality. Okay, these are, um, if we were to understand this kind of coming out of the parable, you have, if, as you would, natural gifts that are given to you. Okay, some of you may be very physically talented or mentally talented, things like that. But you also have responsibilities, maybe graces that are given to you, like covenant blessings given to you. That's what's going on here. But there's, it's in proportion, one, two, and five, each according to their several ability. And there, there is an implied command here, stewardship expected. Okay, by, by virtue of the relationship here, there is an implied command. The master is going on a journey. Take my goods, my, my talents that I'm giving to you, and make me a prophet. Labor and serve for my kingdom and my estate. There's a stewardship that's expected. That's what we have here. Well, secondly, we have stewardship displayed. Verses 16 through 18. It's on display for us. There's a, there's a good stewardship. There's a proportional profit given. So verse 16 says, Then he that had received the five talents went and traded with the same and made them other five talents. And the one who had two made two. And that's important for us to realize that they didn't both make five or both make two. They did it in proportion to what they were given. But notice verse 19. After a long time, the Lord of those servants... I'm sorry, verse 18. But he that had received one went and digged in the earth and hid his Lord's money. This display of stewardship wasn't that he was the prodigal son. Okay, children, you're familiar with that parable, right? It wasn't that he squandered it on loose living. It wasn't that he even lost it. He did nothing with it. That's important. He just hid it in the earth. Did nothing. No work. Neglected it. You see? That's important. Now, before I, I leave this second point, stewardship displayed, it's helpful to also mention this, that we're dealing with money and banking. 
Okay, they're making money off interest. That's clear from verse 26, I believe. Verse 27, he says, Thou oughtest therefore to have put my money to the exchangers, to the bankers. And it's helpful as a preacher to expound the scriptures and to bring things out. There's a question that maybe you've had in your life. Can I go into debt? Can I give money at interest? And that's actually kind of a a debate among some Christians, and it should be an intramural debate. This is one of the passages of Scripture that teaches that interest is not a sin per se. It's to be governed by, like a lot of other things, in moderation. Um, When Paul says in Romans 13, 8, Owe no man anything, he's not talking about money. It's, a, it's almost a figure of a speech there. Okay, it's kind of like when the Gospel of Mark says that all of Jerusalem came to the house. It's not meant to be taken absolutely, right? We are to owe the magistrate honor. We are to owe love to one another. So in Romans 13, 8, which is often used by Christians in good conscience before faith in God, that you can't ever go in debt. That's the text. I think it's uh, taken out of context. In the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 23, 20, God allowed his people to take money at interest from foreigners. They were not to do it to, their, to other Israelites, but they could do it to, to foreigners. It wasn't a sin. And so that's what's going on here. And so you shouldn't... My understanding of the scripture is that it, um, this is an intermule debate, but I, I feel obligated to, to comment on that because I'm a preacher. Stewardship display. But third, stewardship rewarded. Verses 19 through 23. Stewardship rewarded. Verse 19. After a long time, the Lord of those servants cometh and reckoneth with them. And then you have the rest there where he gives the same reward to the one with five talents and the one with two talents. This reward is proportional. In other words, there's not like a flat Hey, Christian, you have to do all this for me. No, God in his grace has given more faith to one Christian than another Christian. Or he's put one Christian in a certain position and not in another position. Or he's given one Christian education, another Christian not education, etc. And he expects you to use what you've been given for him. The same verdict, the same, temp, uh, the same reward was given. The one with two talents that just produced two. Well done. Good and faithful servant. You know, Christian stewardship is a faithful stewardship. And that's what we have here. It's also a final reward. After a long time, the Lord of those servants cometh and reckoneth with them. It's, it's um, the, the final judgment is in view here. Partly because of the context of the chapter. What happens to the unprofitable servant, the parallel there. This is a final reckoning of someone's life. There's also a, uh, and so you have, um, just a little bit more on that. You have this enter into the, enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. That's a reference to heaven. Heaven is preeminently known to to be with the Lord and to have the joy of the Lord because we're with him. That's what's going on. There's also a temporal reward. Both, again, the, the, the servant with five talents and the servant with two talents. You'll notice here it says, verse 21, he says, Well done, thou good and faithful servant, and thou hast been faithful over a few things. 
I will make thee ruler over many things. And I believe that's a reference to temporal things today. So, for example, this is, this is really a, just an aspect of the law of nature. I remember being a lieutenant in Iraq. One of my friends, who was the best lieutenant in the battalion, he was kind of like talking to me one day. I remember this. He was like, my company commander keeps giving me more work to do. You know, I have to go on longer missions. And I'm like, Will, his name was Will. He's like, Will, you're the best lieutenant in the battalion. Of course he's going to give it to you. And if, you go, if you're in the corporate world or in a business, you understand this. You, you, you give your best employees the most important work. And there's a sense in which, I haven't worked at all in my mind, but as you serve the Lord, he gives you more responsibility. And he gives you more gifts and rewards, temporally. I'm not talking about a, a um, prosperity gospel. I could f- flesh that out more, but I think it's here. It's certainly here on the other side of the spectrum, too, which we'll see in the next section. This is the stewardship that's rewarded. There's a stewardship that's judged, and that's my fourth point of exposition. Verse 24 through 30, and a lot of time is spent here um, in the text, in the parable. This is a focus of the, of the narrative, of, of the passage. So a couple of things here. Stewardship judged. This judgment is fair. It's fair. Verse 24. Then he which had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew thee, that thou art a hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown, and gathering where thou hast not straw. And we know the rest of the narrative where he, the master responds and says, hey, you know, uh, you knew I, I reap where I didn't sow, etc. How do we understand this? Well, the master's not a hard or a harsh man. He's not. He's being accused of that. And then his response, I understand in these following verses, you, you might have kind of a question in your mind. Verse 26 says, His Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, thou knewest that I reap where I sowed not. The sense is, if this was actually true in your life, and you believe that, you would have worked. You wouldn't have been lazy. He's not a hard man. He rewarded the two-talent servant with the same for the five-talent servant. An example of a harsh master is Pharaoh in Egypt, where he said, you know what, Israel, I'm not even going to give you the straw, and you're going to make the same amount of bricks. That's ridiculous. And so it's fair he's not a, because he's not a hard man. It's also fair because this servant was slothful. Verse 26, thou wicked and slothful servant. He was lazy, did nothing. And the master, who is Jesus Christ, calls his slothfulness wicked. That's how I understand that. I don't think the servant here was secretly an adulterer. No. He's wicked in the sense that he's slothful. It's a wicked thing to neglect my talents and to bury them. That's, what, that's the sense here. Notice another thing about this, this judgment. It's transparent. It's manifest. It's open. Okay? Verse 25, he says, And I was afraid... And went and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo, there thou hast that is thine. This is an excuse. 
I, I know I didn't, you know, make another talent, but I was afraid, and I just, you know, uh, you know, not a big deal, right? And the reason why I say this is uh, transparent, because the master just completely, listen, you're not fooling the master. He knows that you're just lazy, and you, and you falsely accused him. That's what I think is going on here. Kids, you have an argument with your siblings. You go to your parents. And your parents are trying to arbitrate, well, who's right? I mean, this is the situation I find myself in sometimes at, at my house. I have some kids. And I don't know how to always, you know, like, well, okay, give back the toy to them. They had it first. Or, you know what, just take the toy away. Whatever. I don't know what's going on. God knows everything that's going on. You, you, at the judgment, no one's going to fool Jesus. All things are naked and open to the eyes of him we must give an account. Jesus Christ is speaking to the churches in Revelation. What's the first thing he says to them? Ephesus, you know, Smyrna, all the, I know thy works. I know thy works. I wonder how many people in the covenant community, the visible church, think they're going to fool God. Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Depart from me, I never knew you. You practice lawlessness. That's what Jesus says to them in Matthew 7. I think that's what's going on here. People are going to give excuses on the judgment. It won't work. This judgment is temporal. Look at verse 28. Take therefore the talent from him, and give it unto him which hath ten talents. For unto every one that hath shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath. Again, I can confess some limitations as a, as a preacher. I haven't worked all this out, nor do I think it's necessarily profitable just to go into all this, these temporal things. But the idea is that you, know, you neglect God's gifts. You neglect the preaching of the word that you hear every week from this pulpit and whatever else you're given. And he just slowly takes more. He just takes it from you. And that's the idea. It's a temporal thing. It's not just a final thing. Now, it is also a final thing. This, ju this stewardship judged, this judgment here is a final judgment. Verse 30. We learn a lot about hell in this verse. And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. Not the abominable servant. Not the adulterous servant. The unprofitable servant. Hell is a place where God's gracious presence is not. Okay? Darkness conveys that idea. Other places, the Bible describes hell as a lake of fire. Well, fire gives forth light. It's almost like we don't know much about hell, just like we don't know much about heaven. Right? Fire is, a, is to convey the idea of torment. Darkness conveys God. God is light, you see? God's gracious presence is not in hell. Hell here is a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. They're going to be cast into this place, right? Weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's a far side comic. I'm not against comics per se. I'm not against far side per se, but this is definitely wrong. There's a far side comic, if you're familiar with far side. 
and there's like some demons in the corner, and there's some fire in the corner, and there's people kind of walking around hell and you know whatnot, and, and they kind of have their friends or whatnot. Uh, there's a country song where the guy says, you know, my friends are in hell, kind of flippantly. There's no friends in hell. It's a horrible place. They're, they're weeping, conscious. They're conscious of where they are at. They're gnashing their teeth at one another. They're mad. <clears throat> it's a final judgment. So this is the exposition of the passage. My exposition of this passage is my longest heading, my longest section. But at this, this point in my message to you, I want to transition from this exposition and say, you know, what does this mean? What is the parable getting at? And this is my doctrine. And I want to, I want to state it and I want to, to defend it because you need, you need to believe God's word and, and know what it means. So my doctrine is this. Jesus Christ will reckon and judge his covenant people regarding how they have used his gifts for his glory. Jesus Christ will reckon and judge his covenant people regarding how they have used his gifts for his glory. So what I mean by this doctrine is it will be Jesus Christ himself. Okay? There will be a reckoning. He's going to lay it out, give an account, and then from that a judgment will be made. Not just, you know, in a negative sense, also in a positive sense, but there's going to be a judgment made. And that judgment's going to be on how God's people have used what he's given them. All their natural gifts, all their covenant gifts and blessings for his glory. That's the doctrine of the text. Now I want to confirm this doctrine. I want to answer an objection and give some reasons. So three things under this doctrine a section. I want to confirm it with other passages of Scripture. We believe in the analogy of Scripture. There's other passages of Scripture that directly say things like that I'm saying, right? So Luke 12, verse 48, the parallel account of this parable, although it was is given at another time, and it's a little different. Luke 12, 48 says this, For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall be much required. So there's going to be a reckoning. And it's going to be in proportion to how much they've been given. Right? Take 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 10. This is where some other things kind of come together. I could give you lots of scripture, but I'll just give you one other text. 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 10. Listen to this. This is Paul, the apostle, speaking to the Corinthians. Wherefore we labor, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in the body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. So Jesus is going to be the judge, and it's everyone. We. Not just the Muslims who have never heard the gospel. The covenant people with God. 
Okay, so my second thing under, under doctrine, I want to answer an objection. And if you're, you might be thinking to yourself, okay, this sounds a lot like salvation by works. <laughs> and that's good if you're thinking that, because I haven't clarified that yet, really, have I? And I want to massage that out and explain what I mean. Wait, guest preacher here, <laughs> Reverend Ketchum. Salvation is by grace alone, not by works. And that's true. Salvation, in all of its parts, right? Regeneration, justification, adoption, sanctification, all this. It's all by grace. But let's flesh this out a little bit. Take justification. Right? I hope you understand what justification is. Justification is an act of God's free grace whereby He pardoneth all our sins. He accepteth us as righteous in His sight. Only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Okay, Philippians 3.9, Paul says, I want to be found in him. That's a covenantal language, right? I want to be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Christ lived it, he obeyed it, God gives it to the sinner, he imputes it to them, not of works. My standing and anyone standing before Jesus Christ in the judgment seat for, for, for acceptance with him is because of Jesus Christ. That's on the table, 100%. But here's the thing. Salvation doesn't stop there. God, through Christ, draws you near to him. He adopts you as a son, as a daughter in his house. And he sanctifies you by his spirit. And you progressively live for him. Yes, Christians sin. Christians can even fall in serious sin. But they will repent by God's grace. And they will live progressively for him more and more. And you'll show yourself to be a Christian. And so, when that doesn't happen, right, there's all kinds of warnings in the Bible, right? Right? Again, I mentioned one earlier, Matthew 7. You know, Jesus told these people who called him Lord, I never knew you, you practiced lawlessness. Right? You may have experienced in this congregation uh, someone who professed faith, and then let's say they commit adultery, and they go, go astray. And they, and they go away. And they may even profess with their mouth. They might not, but they might even profess with their mouth that um, they're not a Christian. And they never were saved. And they show that by their works. They show that by their life that they were not Christians. They were not actually connected to the Lord Jesus Christ by, by His Spirit. Right? And so what you need to do, what I'm saying is this. You need to add to that list. You know, it's not just adultery. Right? Oh, now I know where your, your true colors are. It's laziness. You see? Add that to the list of things. You're showing yourself not to actually know God because you're neglecting these gifts. Your spiritual knowledge is still at the fifth grade when you were in Sunday school when you were a little kid because you neglect all the preaching you've heard, not listening to it, whatever else it is. So I'm not, I'm not denying... Salvation by grace alone. I'm trying to get you to think more deeply. Well, my last point under doctrine, and this is really helpful here. I'm going to try to cover this fairly quickly because I want to get to application. But three reasons for this doctrine. Okay, so Jesus Christ will reckon and judge his covenant people regarding how they have used his gifts for his glory. 
Some of you here, you know, might be thinking to yourself, wait a second, this is pretty, you know, I, I mean, I owe my whole life to God. Like, you know, I thought I would just come to church on Sunday morning and, you know, raise my kids, live a pretty good life, you know. This is like total. And yeah, that's what I'm saying. The first reason is that God has an absolute right over you. I don't have an absolute right over my kids. God has an absolute right over you. It is lawful for him to say to you, give me everything. You owe everything for me. So in 1 Corinthians 6.20, Paul says that you've been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and the inhabitants therein. That's something you need to keep in mind. Secondly, neglecting God's covenant blessings is actually very wicked in God's eyes. So you're like me, right? You're like me, and you see sins such as homosexuality or adultery or, um, you know, lying or something, and you're like, man, that's just like really wicked. Like, that person just straight up lied for like 10 years about this one thing. Wow. In God's eyes, neglecting gifts and not using them for his glory and using them for your own glory is very wicked. Think about this way. Matthew 11, 23 through 24. It's that woe woe to Capernaum passage, right? Jesus says that it's going to be more tolerable on the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah. Think about what Sodom and Gomorrah did than for Capernaum. These are Jews. These are covenant people in Capernaum who heard Jesus' preaching, saw his miracles, and did not believe in him. It's a wicked thing in God's eyes. More tolerable in the day of judgment for Sodomites than for you, Capernaum. So, you know, my, my doctrine might be kind of heavy, like, whoa, I mean, laziness, like, just neglecting things, like, isn't, you know, no. Look at it from God's perspective. How many people in this world have heard Jesus' name maybe once or twice? You've heard faithful preaching for, what, 27 years from this pulpit. You know, maybe, maybe you have it yourself personally, but you get my point. And you could neglect that. That's very wicked. One last thing under reasons here. It is possible to be outwardly upright, but spiritually unconverted, unfruitful. In other words, you're not living a scandalous life, but you're just willfully neglecting, not serving God. It's possible to be that way. Not every person is equally deprived, depraved. Not every unconverted person is equally depraved, right? Romans 1, Paul's describing kind of a plummet of society, ultimately into um, you know, homosexuality and things like that. They don't, not everyone's that bad, though, and they're still unconverted. Judas. This is really helpful to think about. Judas was, in some sense, a very unique person in history. But in other sense, he was just a member of the covenant people of God who wasn't converted, and no one knew it. So John 13, 22, Jesus is at the table. He says, one of you will betray me. And it's not like the disciples were like, yeah, I know he's talking about. They didn't know. That brings me chill bumps. I mean, Jesus knew. God knows. Okay. Even after he left, they were still trying to figure out what was going on. He was pretty good at hiding it. Morally upright life. 
outwardly. Outwardly, at least. So just think about that for a second. I'm not talking about scandalous sin. I'm talking about neglecting God's gifts. Well, at this point, I hope I have convinced you of a doctrine from Scripture, and that it's not the words of a man, but it is God's Word to you. So let's apply this. I want to ask you two questions. I'm going to spend a little bit of time here. Because this is still abstract. It's a parable talking about talents. Like, what, what are we doing here? Well, I want to ask you some questions. What has God given you? So two questions. What has Jesus Christ given you? He's given you time. You have time to serve the church. You can neglect serving the church. He's giving everybody in here has as many hours on the Sabbath day as anybody else. Are you serving God and you worshiping God? Or are you not? Everybody has a body. Literally, are you being lazy and not working? Men, especially. He's given you a strong body to work. Actually, the practical application is don't be lazy. I, know, I, I met a man a few weeks ago, two weeks ago. He's in a wheelchair. As I, t- I spoke to him in his house, very much of a man, very much of a vigor of a man. He doesn't have legs. You have legs? You're able-bodied man? Work. Ladies, part of the reason why you have the body that you have, especially the ones that are married, is so you can have children. It is a sin for a woman to say, I don't like how pregnancy changes my body. I'm just going to stop it too. And you can have babies. And I say that specifically, but that's a problem in our society and our church. There's lots of other things that go into that. God is, look at it from this perspective. He's given you a body to have children for the next generation to praise. To praise God. Mormons have figured that out. The law of nature. Muslims have figured it out. God's people. Your body. Serve God with your body. Your position. Parents. God's given you kids. Leaders in the church, the school, the state. A big sin in our, our nation is that the state leaders don't serve Christ. It's a big problem. And they often don't. They're Christians privately, but not publicly. Every single one of you is in a position to witness to certain people that Reverend Miller is not going to be able to witness to. You're in a certain position, family, friends, at work. And all you need to do is share spiritual truth to them. And you're in a position... Time and space. Are you doing it? That's a gift. Providential gift. To serve him. You're given money and resources. Here's a, here's a really good application. Cuts to the point. 10% tithe. Are you doing it? If you don't, you're in sin. Repent. He's given you your money. of it, at least, goes to the church. All of your money is God's money, for that matter. You know, a lot of Christians, the the church, the history of the church is full of wealthy Christians who give their resources to the church. Um, I love the OPCs. uh, You have a bunch of missionaries. I saw them in here. It's money. Praise God. Praise God. I know a lady who owns five homes and she rents them out very modestly just to help people. She's a good steward of her homes and she serves God with her resources. You're all given a mind. 
you're on a car ride, I-85 going to Atlanta, it's not an issue of time because it's going to take you however long it takes you. Are you going to talk with your kids? Are you going to disciple them and love them? Are you going to listen to a sermon or zone out and listen to some music that may not, may not be sinful, but you know, just love God with your mind. He's given you a mind. Something to think about. You've given, you've given covenant gifts. You've been given providential afflictions, the death of a loved one, cancer, a miscarriage, car wreck. Are you making use of these afflictions? It's good for me that I've been afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Look at it from that perspective. Jesus Christ in his, in his human nature learned from the things that he suffered. You can grow bitter with God, or you can by faith learn from them. Because God's given those afflictions to you. It's a gift. Godly examples. How many examples do you have in your life? Maybe it was your parent. Maybe it was a high school football coach. Or maybe it was a pastor or a friend. And they live godly before you. And their life is a living witness to you. How many people in this world, maybe they've heard of Jesus, but they're around a bunch of unbelievers. Are you using private rebukes? Maybe you're a rebellious teenager and your parents keep telling you, don't do this. Your pastor warns you. Siblings, friends. That's the Lord Jesus in his own way. Are you paying attention to these gifts, these warnings? The ordained ministry. How are you using the preaching from this pulpit by Boyd Miller? It can go through this ear and out this ear. Or you can receive it with faith and love. You can hide it up in your heart. And you can practice it in your life. How many people in the world, even in this country, have an unfaithful minister? What a blessing. Think of all the teaching you have in family worship, Sabbath school. The fact that you have access to this guy, respectively speaking. Are you reading it? You can go on the internet and read God's word. Wow. So this is what God's, specifically Jesus Christ has given you. So what are you going to do? This is my last question. What are you going to do? Well, there's different people here. There's profitable servants here. Perhaps there's unprofitable servants here. So a couple of things. In light of this sermon, in light of these things that Christ has given you, some of you here need to do this. Fear not. What I mean is this. You look at the life of Dr. Joel Beakey, and you're like, man, he built a seminary, he's written books, he started a church, people have been converted in his ministry, he's done so much for the Lord, I haven't really done anything. Well, you've been given one talent. And you've produced one talent. And your master is a fair, gracious master. And you don't need to fear Jesus Christ. You don't need to compare yourself to the person next to you. It's a very helpful application. Um, fear not. Serve the Lord, keep serving the Lord. Ask him for more gifts. And use what he's given you. Another application. 
kind of turning it a little bit around, maximize. Maybe you are like a Joel Beakey. And you're looking next to you in the pew, and you're like, you know, I'm doing a lot more than a lot of people are doing. You've been given five talents. And it's not an issue of heaven or hell. You know the Lord, you're serving him. Maximize. He's died for you. Work for him. Serve him. I was recently encouraged by the life of John Brown of Paddington. I read his mini biography at the front of RHB's book, uh, his systematic theology. John Brown of Paddington was a Scottish Presbyterian minister in Scotland in the 1700s, born in utter poverty, was an orphan, I think by the time he was 13 years old, something like that, and was mightily used in the church, became a minister and served God, well-respected pastor. Just, he just maximized. You know, he just was passionate for the Lord and just maximized. Some of you need to re-examine your life. Re-examine. Take these gifts I've, I've told you about and think about it. Are you serving him? Where can you maybe, maybe re-examine your life a wee bit? Some of you here may be unprofitable servants, and it's not because you're lazy. It's not because you're not successful and profitable in another sense, but you're serving yourself. It's not directly in the text, but I think it's helpful. A lot of Christians... You, know, you might be thinking to yourself, I come here every Sunday, my kids aren't rebellious, I make a lot of money. Have you sacrificed for Christ? Are you living for yourself or for Him, for His honor? Have you redefined what it means to serve God? Jesus Christ says to you, give me what is mine. All of you is mine. Not just Sunday morning for an hour. Or just some cash, you know, thrown into the plate. Some of you need to beware. You live a scandal-free life, but you're lazy. You're not growing in the Lord. You're not serving Him. You have no fruit. And you need to beware. This parable is a warning to you. Jesus didn't say, adulterous servant, lying servant, unprofitable. Beware. Think. Are you really using the gifts that you've been given. Beware. And lastly, I would like to say this to you. It's not the judgment yet. So, Christ, in this message, has come to you. Let's say you're an unprofitable servant. And he's warning you. And you're not at the judgment with Christ. And Christ is warning you, and he, he says to you, give me what is mine. Repent. Seek forgiveness. Ask God. Say, God, I'm not asking you to forgive me for being an adulterer, because I'm not. I'm not asking you, literally, 
I'm not asking you to you know, forgive me for all these scandalous sins that I haven't committed. I'm asking you to forgive me for neglecting all your many gifts, for living for myself, and he will forgive you. He will forgive you. And you must do this. Dear brethren, brothers and sisters in the Lord, Jesus is coming to you in this passage of Scripture. And he's saying to you, give me what is mine. I am king of the universe. Serve me. Worship me. Love me. Live for me. Amen. Let us bow our heads briefly with, for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bless us yet again with the gift of faith and repentance to the degree that we are not serving you and misusing your gifts. We ask that you would help us to repent. We ask that you would help us to continue to serve you, be faithful to maximize. Help us to be faithful stewards. Awaken any of those here who are unprofitable servants. May you be glorified in all things. We confess that Jesus Christ is worthy of our life. We pray in his name. Amen.